I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. Good evening. I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens. Tonight. An X on the ballot. Colorado's Supreme Court rules Donald Trump should be excluded from the state's presidential primary. One Republican tells us he doesn't support the former president, but also says removing him from the ballot defies democracy. Getting back on track. A BC MP is traveling home from Ontario by train. And not just because it seems fun, which it does, but because he believes that trip should be easier. Migration patterns. We'll hear from a researcher with Amnesty International who says the EU's new agreement for dealing with irregular arrivals is filled with all too regular forms of discrimination. Present tension. A boy's yearning for a pair of skates stirs up emotions for him and for his parents in tonight's holiday reading from W.O. Mitchell's beloved novel, Who Has Seen the Wind? Poultry in motion, a BC animal shelter is crowing about its successful apprehension of two roosters that were found wandering around Prince George. And pubic service announcement, (laughs) if you find yourself overcome by the festive spirit, take it easy. A German urologist has determined that this is not the most wonderful time of the year when it comes to penile fractures. As it happens, the Wednesday edition, radio that advises bed rest, ye married genital men. Every presidential candidate faces challenges getting into office, but Donald Trump is struggling with an unusual challenge in one state, just getting his name on the ballot. Late yesterday, Colorado's Supreme Court ruled that the former U.S. president should be excluded from the presidential primary ballot. The ruling marks the first time a court has excluded a presidential candidate using a constitutional provision that bans those who engaged in insurrection from holding office. That ruling has been stayed temporarily and will very likely be appealed to the Supreme Court. And regardless, it doesn't seem to have phased Mr. Trump. Here's what he said to supporters at a rally in Iowa last night. Every time the radical left Democrats, Marxists, communists and fascists indict me, I consider it actually a great badge of honor. Our enemies want to take away my freedom because I will never let them take away your freedom. It's very simple. I'm not going to let them do it. They want to silence me because I will never let them silence you. And in the end, they're not after me. They're after you. I just happen to be standing in their way, and I always will stand in their way. Sage Noman is a conservative strategist and columnist. We reached him outside Denver, Colorado. Sage, you've said, you've written that you don't support Donald Trump. You don't think he should be president. So how did this ruling hit you when it came down? My first reaction was surprise. I think that was the case for many people who were paying attention to this case in Colorado. Um, I was surprised by the ruling. Uh, As much as I don't like Donald Trump, I think that uh, 
This is the wrong approach to defeating him. The president of the Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, petitioners behind this challenge, the president is no bookbinder. He called this, quote, historic and justified and that it's, quote, necessary to protect the future of democracy in our country. And, quote, what effect do you think it will have on democracy? I think it's a little bit ironic when somebody says that in order to protect democracy, we must remove people from the ballot. Like I said, as much as I dislike former President Donald Trump, uh, I think that this ruling sets a terrible precedent for the future of our country. The idea that our states and our state Supreme Courts can decide whether or not somebody is in violation of Section 3, Amendment 14 of the United States Constitution is, I think, legally dubious, though I'm not a, I'm not an attorney, but seen much analysis on that front. And I think that it just sets a terrible precedent for us moving forward. I mean, we have uh, seven Supreme Court justices in this state that are appointed by Democratic governors, but there are a lot of red states in this country as well. And you can imagine this precedent if we said it, that these states are able to dictate who will and will not appear on the ballot for the presidency, especially a leading contender for the presidency. Uh, imagine where this road can lead to. The the ruling talks about the insurrection and the role of Donald Trump in that. There hasn't been a conviction, obviously, but there have been multiple instances where this provision was applied without a conviction before, including last year when a judge in New Mexico removed a county commissioner from office. That doesn't appease you clearly. Why? Well, I think that especially if you read the dissenting opinions from a few of the justices here in Colorado, you get a taste for just how rapidly this case happened and how different it is from, for example, a traditional case trying somebody for something such as insurrection or something related to it. I mean, I think that it was Justice uh, Samore who commented in his dissenting opinion that normally these kind of cases, and we're talking about Colorado election law, take about a week. They take about a week because that's what the law requires it to be. Because a lot of times when you're challenging the ballot, when you're saying somebody shouldn't be on the ballot, it has to be decided very, very quickly to get them off the ballot. This entire process took 72 days, which was in violation of the law, but still not nearly long enough for us to determine whether a former president engaged in insurrection. And I think that's what is so important, is that this was not a fair trial. Justice Samore said so in his dissenting opinion. He said he had been involved in the justice system for 33 years and had never seen anything like this in a court of law. Normally, parties are able to conduct discovery, subpoena documents, compel witnesses. That didn't happen in this case. There was no jury trial. Even if you know, I'm not you know, extremely familiar with the New Mexico case, I do know what happened, but I haven't read those opinions, mm -hmm. and I don't know if there's an appeal or anything like that. But regardless, Section 3 of Amendment 14 had not been used in over 100 years before now. This is a civil era amendment to the U.S. Constitution that has not been talked about or utilized in over a century. I think it's important to recognize the period of time that this was passed in, what it was used for then, and turn to Congress for how it should be used for now, not individual state legislatures and certainly not individual state Supreme Courts. Ultimately, Sage, what kind of impact do you think this case might have on Donald Trump's campaign and his chances of becoming president again? I think at the end of the day, this is going to empower former President Trump, uh, having, I guess, a, a contradictory effect to what people wanted. 
But I think the Supreme Court is probably going to strike this down. They're probably going to say that the states don't have the right to interpret and enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. They'll probably say that Congress needs to clarify in, you know, how somebody can be found guilty of insurrection. Uh, but again, I'm not a legal scholar, so we'll have to see what happens. But regardless, I can almost guarantee you that he will appear on the ballot. He will be a candidate for president here. And his supporters are going to be more emboldened than ever. And this is going to further validate their claims that this is an effort to take away their voices and help Trump get one step closer to the White House. And that's why I think this is such a short-sighted and justifies the means approach to doing this. And it could really have the opposite effect that people are desiring. What would have the effect that you desire? You said he he shouldn't be president in your view. You said he's, he's unfit for the presidency. Right. So what is the tactic then? Defeat him in an election. We're a democratic republic. That's how it works. I don't like him, but if the majority, uh, you know, if we if the electoral college elects him to the presidency again, then I'm just not going to get my way. That's how it happens. I don't want Joe Biden as president either. I didn't vote for him either. Um, but here I am. I've I've lived under uh, two presidents now for the last seven years that I I didn't support and and didn't vote for. And that's just the way that democracy works sometimes. The answer is not to try to find creative legal theories to be able to throw people off the ballot because we don't like them, regardless of what a joke they possibly are. Sage, I appreciate your time. Thank you. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. Sage Nauman is a conservative strategist, commentator, and columnist. We reached him outside Denver, Colorado. A new EU pact on migration is being hailed as a landmark deal years in the making. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen says it means, quote, protecting those in need, unquote. And the liberal European Parliament group Renew Europe calls it, quote, a strong system based on responsibility and solidarity, unquote. But Amnesty International says it will lead to a surge in suffering, which is strong criticism in the context of a system that is already far from kind to asylum seekers hoping to enter Europe. Olivia Sundberg-Diaz is an EU advocate on migration and asylum with Amnesty International. We reached her in Brussels. Olivia, at this point, it, it appears that there is a lot of support for this deal. You're not pleased? You're not clapping? Why is that? Our assessment is that this agreement is going to mean that more people are being detained de facto at EU borders, including families and young children, that more people will be denied a fair and full assessment of their asylum claim, And most worryingly, that countries will be able to suspend crucial EU asylum rules in times of increased arrivals or of so-called instrumentalization of migrants. So situations like those at the EU's border with Belarus since 2021. Let's unpack a little bit of of what what you're saying there. Uh, But I'll I'll read just one quote. Um, the, The head of the Socialist and Democrats group in the parliament said, quote, we managed a deal that not only focuses on border protection, but also contains solidarity with refugees, as well as between member states, and upholds the right to asylum, end quote. So you're saying that this is not going to help refugees. You don't see solidarity in this. Give me an example of, of there's an irregular arrival. Describe what you think is going to happen to that person. Just paint a picture of that for our listeners. 
Absolutely. And of course, just uh, to start, of course, the perspective from the EU policymakers, the people who have been in the room negotiating this is, is of, of, of course, quite different from ours. What we expect to happen in practice is that when somebody arrives in Europe, um, like I said, including families with children, somebody who is fleeing uh, conflict or persecution, the first thing that happens is at the EU's border, they would have a mandatory screening and then they may be channeled to a mandatory border asylum procedure. These procedures would take potentially months. They would be held in closed centers, so much like those on the Greek islands, while they wait for a result on that asylum application. Now, in that asylum assessment, most people would be denied a fair and full assessment of their asylum claim. So rather than a usual asylum procedure... So, well, this is the the precise proposal. So rather than the usual asylum procedure and standards in Europe at the moment, certain groups of people would be channeled through a second-rate border asylum procedure that carries reduced legal safeguards. So these procedures, we know when they've been used in the past, they significantly increase the chance of rejection. And then in times of high arrivals, these procedures would be even harsher. So for instance, countries could go even further and suspend a number of different asylum standards. So again, Mm -hmm. I understand that there's been high pressure to reach a deal, but we're very concerned about the practical impact this is going to have in practice for someone seeking safety. Yeah, as you well know through your work, people keep making these crossings. Europe saw a 17% jump in irregular arrivals this year. So there has to be some sort of strategy What do you think that strategy should be if it's not the one that has been agreed upon here? It's perfectly possible to have a system that processes asylum cases fairly, that receives people with dignity when they arrive. But what this agreement does is it moves the EU in the opposite direction. It allows more countries to disregard the right to asylum, to disapply the rule of law at borders without accountability. It relies more on countries outside the EU's borders to stop arrivals rather than investing into receiving those who do reach its shores. So if the EU wants to build a better response at borders, a good first step would be addressing the lack of investment in asylum and reception, which means that people are sleeping rough across the EU. Um, the ongoing unlawful and often violent pushbacks at borders by creating mechanisms for accountability. But all of these changes take a renewed commitment to upholding rights in Europe, to defending the right to asylum without conditions, no matter where people come from, no matter how they arrive. Is that realistic, though, in, in this climate when there is a growing faction within the European Parliament that would have much preferred, even stricter regulation on migration. Uh, And, you know, that that we're at a point where a compromise was necessary. Of course, politics is often about compromise. Um, What we have argued and warned from the beginning is that human rights cannot be compromised in the rush to try to reach a deal. That's exactly what happened today. Um, Principles like the right to asylum cannot become conditional. Um, And it's true that there's been divisions between member states. It's true that some governments have been pushing for more restrictive measures. But it's important to remember that many people across Europe do support humane migration and asylum policies and coherent common responses at borders. And we have seen positive efforts to welcome people, um, you know, not not least in the response to people fleeing Ukraine in the last few years in far greater numbers. So this too is Europe. And this vision has real potential to drive reforms if there is the political courage to take it forward. 
On the financial piece that you're mentioning, as part of this deal, countries that receive fewer asylum seekers will have to give financial compensation to the countries that are, are taking in more, uh, a, a larger number, a higher number of asylum seekers. So do you believe that that might be able to improve conditions at the borders of those countries? Unfortunately not. The pact, despite the way that policymakers talk about it, in practice falls short of concretely supporting states in Southern Europe where many people first arrive. So what it introduces is, like you mentioned, a flexible solidarity system that would allow other states to, rather than, for example, relocating asylum seekers, um, which the parliament has been calling for for years, it would allow other countries to simply pay for border capacities, for border surveillance, even to fund countries outside of the EU as a form of solidarity to prevent arrivals in Europe. Um, so, for example, the Libyan Coast Guard, the Tunisian Coast Guard, we can think of examples like that. So this understanding of flexible solidarity, rather than prioritizing solidarity for protection, solidarity with asylum seekers and refugees, um, actually is geared at reducing access to protection. What is the message do you think this pact is sending to migrants? Um, I think that there's been many pressures within the EU to make it harder for people to access safety, to contain more people at European borders. Uh, we think that the EU is sleepwalking into a system that will be in even greater need of reform. And that this is distracting from the real investments and the real work that is needed to address some of those pressing problems. Olivia, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure to speak to you. Likewise. Olivia Sundberg-Diaz is an EU advocate on migration and asylum with Amnesty International. We reached her in Brussels. They're known as Cluck Norris and Foghorn. And this weekend, the two toughs were found wandering near downtown Prince George, where they were apprehended by bylaw officers who did not charge them because they are roosters. And now they're in the care of the North Caribou SPCA. Kristen Sumner is the manager there. She told the CBC how she learned about the roosters. My team, it was a day that I was away. My team had sent a photo in our images group and it was a rooster and I immediately I go, where am I going to fit a rooster in this building? And then another photo comes in, and where am I going to fit two big roosters in this building? And they're not best friends, believe it or not. Uh, so we have two roosters that are living in our dog and cat-centered location here. So it's been quite the learning pathway for us. We have a rooster professional on our team that knows all about them that has been in care in charge of their care their feeding so we would come in we house them together uh and we we assume we're at large together gallivanting around the town uh that they would have come from the same property but early on we noticed that they would just kind of make these noises at each other and we were just a little worried so rather than wait until they were jerks to each other we decided to just house them separate and keep them enriched and happy um, away from each other because we don't have that much space for roosters here. So we're really, we're, uh, we've really adjusted our building to make sure they fit. We have had 
I say we average about two roosters a year coming into our care. Um, last time it was a, another Sunday in 2022 where we had two roosters come in through animal control again. Um, so we wonder if it's just an annual holiday thing that we're kind of lucky with, um, but it's not something that we've got a lot of experience with. We are hearing the rooster noises throughout the building. Uh, we've had a couple of people that come in for adoptions for cats and dogs or holiday donations where they've gone, is that, is that a video? Is it a recording? Or like, no, it's a rooster crowing. And you go in and they're sitting on the top of their kennels and they're all puffy and proud of themselves. And some of the staff are absolutely terrified of them. So cleaning them, they are working with them the best they can, but I've heard a couple girls scream because they move towards them a little too quickly. So we've got our we've got our bird savvy teammates and then the ones that are just here's your food, you're huge, and they're big. They're big roosters. So it's definitely a bird that you might be afraid of if you're a little nervous. Most unusual animal you've had? Probably not. I don't know. <laughs> I would say this is um, just because we're, we don't have a lot of farm zoning inside city limits. It's definitely the strangest animal we've had in through animal control. So through the city of Prince George to bring into our care, this is. Kristen Sumner is the manager of the North Caribou SPCA. She was speaking to the CBC's Andrew Curiata in BC. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house two creatures were stirring, and then one yelled ouch, and had to go to the ER with a penile fracture. That seasonal tale is based on a chilling true story, in the form of a recent study done in Germany. The research team wanted to know whether there was a particular time of year when people suffered more penile fractures. So they looked at nationwide data on 3,421 patients who spent time in hospital with such injuries from 2005 to 2021. The findings are published in the British Journal of Urology International. Urologist Nikos Piridis is the lead author, and he is in Munich. Nikos, your paper opens with an objective, as all papers do, of course. Yours says, quote, to explore whether Christmas might be a risk factor for penile fractures due to the Christmas spirit related to the intimacy and euphoria of these holly jolly days, end quote. You and your team had some fun writing this one, didn't you? Yeah, of course. Like, <laughs> we enjoyed it. Uh, it's like we wrote it for these purposes, to, to have fun and amuse the audience. How did it all come about, though? Did you just wake up one day and say, hey, I really need to know the latest statistics on penile fractures? Uh, <laughs> the initial idea came from one of the co-authors, Dr. Kalupka. We wanted to examine whether penile fractures occur more or less often during the COVID pandemic, like during the strict lockdown period and the whole pandemic uh, period uh, in total. And we went then one step further and decided to examine like some fancy periods, Christmas, New Year's mm -hmm. Eve, summer, all months, and the weekends and the weekdays, of course. And we came up with some interesting conclusions, I think. Well, interesting, certainly. That's why we're talking to you. So what? What? tell us some of those conclusions about the timing. When you see a spike of these fractures. What was statistically significant where the spike is, is on the weekend, 
like here we had the highest incident rate ratios Christmas like from the 24th to the 26th of December mm -hmm. and in summer as a whole like the three uh, summer months June July and August why is this happening that's a very good question <laughs> and I mean, so I much in Germany answer. These are the trends from Germany. I don't know what's happening in Canada or in the US, but I suppose that's more or less the same because it seems that it happens when the couples are having sex. And when are the couples having sex? When they have time. And when do the couples have time? On the weekend, in summer, yeah. and on national holidays, like in periods of intimacy and euphoria, as I stated in the object. Right. But not New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, interestingly. Yeah, that's also an interesting finding. Like the Christmas uh, markets are closing in Germany and the Germans are throwing probably fireworks during the New Year's Eve and they don't have time for sex. But these are only speculations, of course. We are waiting for more studies to come. Of course, more research is, is always needed. We do a lot of science yeah. stories on this program. But how did you, just getting the, the funding or the permission or the time to do this, was that difficult? The data are based on the whole German data set. Like, okay. we have access to this data set for other purposes. We are also publishing serious research on oncology, on annual trends after other urological operations. So that was a fancy story. That was a fancy idea that we had. And we wanted to explore that. Are you going to make this a tradition? What do you mean a tradition? Update this study every year. You got to you got to check the stats. I don't think that <laughs> it will add further information. But I'm looking forward to see further studies from all over the world. I mean, yeah. I'm really keen on the Canadian data, on the data from the US, from uh, Netherlands, from the UK. I mean. Everybody, there are lots of centers that have access to other data sets from other uh, countries, like nationwide data from all over the world. They didn't have the idea, so we were the first that had this mm -hmm. funny idea. But now the idea is there. I hope that somebody mm -hmm. will also examine the corresponding data. I'm sure that there are urologists listening in Canada and the United States to this conversation. So we'll see if they they pick up your challenge. But let me ask you, apart from, you know, that when you look at the days where there were increased yeah. incidents of these fractures, beyond having more time, was there was there something else happening? We don't know. That's a good question. Like the data set has certain information we could not uh, further uh, assess for further risk factors. Like we concentrated on ana our analysis on the time period that penile mm -hmm. fractures occur. There are some studies on the field which suggest that penile fractures occur more often in unconventional scenar scenarios like Couples, men with extramarital affairs, unusual locations. <laughs> well, there should be an appropriate sexual punishment. Unusual positions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also wrote in your in your study as a fan of 
The great Wham! Christmas classic, Last Christmas, he wrote, quote, in your conclusion, Last Christmas, penile fractures occurred more often. This year, to save us from tears, we will not do something special. That's your new uh, holiday carol. Like the new hit of the year. Like, <laughs> we, our study raises clinical awareness. Uh, it's like, we don't suggest that Christmas is a risk factor, but we found a trend we are trying to to raise awareness. As you raise awareness, I guess, what it, what is your message to folks out there over this holiday season, given the, the critical information that you possess? We have to be prudent. And <laughs> of course, if a penile fracture occurs, or if we suspect a penile fracture, we should seek immediately doctor advice because penile fractures are an absolute urological emergency. Nikos, I appreciate yeah. your time. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to you all. <laughs> Take care. Thanks for hosting me. Take care as well. Nikos Periodis is a resident in urology at Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. He's also the first author on a new paper that looked at seasonal trends of penile fractures in Germany. We reached him in Munich. It's important advice. Stay safe. News everybody. you can use. It's not the most reliable way to get home, but for Taylor Backrack, that is kind of the point. The MP for Skeena Bulkley Valley is headed home from Ottawa to Smithers, B.C. for the holidays, and he's going home the long way, by train. We reached Mr. Backrack en route in Jasper, Alberta. Taylor Backrack, you first hopped on the train in Toronto on Sunday. So four days in, how are you feeling? I feel fantastic. It's been a, a really wonderful journey and uh, certainly given me lots to think about. When's your next ride? I'm going to be hopping on the train here in about an hour in Jasper and riding it uh, through to the town where I was born and grew up, a little community called Dunster, and seeing my mom for, <laughs> uh, for dinner and then hopping back on the train and continuing on to Smithers where my family's waiting for me and uh, I'll be there for Christmas. So how many more days on the train for you? Well, uh, I think two two more days. There's, there's an overnight in Prince George, so okay. it's a it's a bit of a slower trip than I'm used to. I'm more used to flying across the country, and yeah. this is a, a more prolonged way to see the country. Uh, but it's been it's been really wonderful for a bunch of different ways. And we'll talk about that. But you're not doing this just for you know to have a a meditative time on your way home for Christmas or to see the beautiful sights of Canada. You're, you're doing this because you want there to be more focus on passenger trains, for them to be given more priority on rail lines in Canada, priority over freight trains, right? Yeah, well, the train that I was riding, the Canadian, which goes from Toronto to Vancouver, uh, it's a trip that used to take three and a half days and now takes four and a half days. And the reason for that is because the train frequently has to pull onto the siding uh, off the main line to let uh, freight traffic by. Um, and this is a challenge right across Canada because Via Rail, which is the primary passenger rail provider in our country, shares the tracks with the big freight companies. And that makes it extremely challenging for them to maintain a consistent schedule and to deliver uh, what customers and passengers expect, which is for the train to be relatively on time. 
You think that one day delay or one day lengthening of, of a trip like that is turning people off? Well, the Canadian is a is a very, you know, it's a special route. But really, this is a challenge that, that faces every region of our country that has passenger rail. Certainly, where I live in northwest BC, uh, people can't really use the passenger train as everyday transportation because the schedule isn't reliable enough. Um, so that's why I tabled my private member's bill in Parliament last week, mm-hmm. uh, the Rail Passenger Priority Act, to give passenger trains priority on the tracks. So the freight trains would have to let them by and hopefully that'll encourage more people to get on the train and use it as a transportation mode. You've pointed out as well that that this is already happening in the the United States through the Amtrak network. Why is it not happening here, do you think? Well, I I think that's a good question. The the big rail uh, companies, CP and CN, are incredibly powerful and they're making a ton of money moving freight and You know, it's an important part of our economy, but as the United States has shown, if you prioritize passenger rail, um, it can be a more viable uh, form of transportation for folks. And, you know, it's one small part. There's a train slamming in the background in the freight yard here in Jasper. Um, It's one of the changes that we need in order to make passenger rail more viable in our country. There are other things we need to do as well. Uh, We need to keep via rail public. Uh, we need to invest in renewing the long-distance fleet. Uh, the train I was on from Toronto is over 70 years old. It's really a, a piece of rolling Canadian history. And unfortunately, it's coming to the end of its useful life. So we need the federal government to invest in, in new train cars for those those routes. And uh, if we do that, I think, you know, Canada one day could have a proper passenger rail system like so many countries around the world. The Railway Association of Canada, as you likely know, says any changes to legislation need to factor in the efficiency of freight operations. The association points out that that's essential to the Canadian economy. How do you factor that into into what you're suggesting? Is there a balance that can make everyone happy? Well, there needs to be a balance, and I don't think there is right now. And we need to ask ourselves the question about priorities. We have the priority of moving people across uh, a large country, and we have the priority of getting goods to their destination on time. You know, I think uh, we need to put our priorities in the proper order. And by investing in infrastructure, we can hopefully optimize both of those things. What right now, of, that's not happening. What kinds of situations are your constituents finding well, I, themselves I represent in? A, yeah, I represent a really rural part mm-hmm. of Canada. And, and for many reasons, people have to travel to larger centers to access services and do shopping and visit family. Um And there are a lot of people in our communities that either don't own their own car or can't drive. And they have fewer options than ever to get around. Um, So for rural Canada, investing in passenger rail holds a lot of promise for for people. Um, The thing that I've I've really been struck by on this trip is everyone that I talk to, uh, you know, when you bring up the topic of passenger trains, uh, they really light up. They they have, I don't know, trains hold this place in people's hearts and, and they either remember a time in Canada when we had a a more um, functional passenger rail system, or they've traveled to other countries Mm -hmm. where passenger trains are a a really um, mainstream part of transportation. Is the demand there? It sounds like you're suggesting it it may not be now, but if you made it worth people's while. Well, part part of the reason that we've seen ridership decline is because, um, you know, for all the reasons I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier, that the, the service isn't able to meet people's expectations. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that if the government really took a leadership role and changed certain policies, um, that people would use the train. Just a couple of days 
to Christmas now is uh, I'll be home for Christmas playing on a loop <laughs> in your AirPods or in your headphones. Well, maybe, maybe it's a, I hope I'll be home for Christmas. Yeah. Um, things are looking pretty good at this point. I've got okay. a couple more days on the train and um, yeah, really looking forward to being home and just reflecting on all the conversations I've had. Taylor, I appreciate your time. Have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you as well. Taylor Backrack is the MP for Skeena Bulkley Valley. We reached him in Jasper, Alberta. The younger you are, the greater the anticipation. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced the Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Patient of a gift tends to be, and commensurately, the greater the possibility of disappointment. You've probably felt that yourself at some point, so you will understand how much Brian O'Connell has at stake in tonight's holiday story. It's an excerpt from W.O. Mitchell's 1947 novel, Who Has Seen the Wind? And it's read by former As It Happens co-host Barbara Budd. In the O'Connell family, Christmas began as a rule early in December, when the boys started to decide what presents they would like. In Brian's second year of school, Christmas was called earlier to the parents' attention because with the beginning of winter, Brian asked for skates. Maggie's first response was unbelief. It was difficult for her to think that one of her boys was old enough to want skates. She reminded him that he was just past seven and that Forbesy Hoffman didn't have skates yet. Brian replied that Art Sherry had them. Art, who was a year and a half older than Brian, had inherited a pair from an older sister. Their high tops had been cut down. They had to be worn with three pairs of woolen socks so that Art's feet wouldn't slide around in the shoes. But to Brian, skateless, they were things whose beauty would endure forever. Skates became a frequent topic of conversation at meals. At length, the grandmother said she was sick of hearing about them. Would it not be possible to get the child a pair so that he could break his neck and give them a few peaceful meals? Maggie forbade Brian to mention skates at the table again. The day that he saw the new tube skates in the hardware store window, Brian called on his father at work. Oh, why can't I have them, Dad? Well, your mother says you're too young for them. No, but I'm not. I'm... Seven's pretty young for skates. Now, I was seven a long time ago in the fall. I'm past seven. Well, you're still too young. When you're older. Next year, perhaps. Yeah, but I'll be older at Christmas. That's a long ways away. May I have them for Christmas? No, I don't think so, son. After Brian had left, Gerald felt a pang of remorse. It was difficult to see why the boy could not have skates. So that night he had a talk with Maggie. Perhaps by Christmas time, he asked her. He'll be almost seven and a half then. His wife looked at him a long time before answering. 
You know I love him too, Gerald. I hate to deny them anything as much as you. It's just that he seems so... Do you think he's old enough? Do you honestly? Yeah, I think so, Maggie. It isn't because he just wants them so badly. Well, he's old enough. Let him skate. So after a decent interval, Brian was told that he might possibly get skates for Christmas. Bobby then insisted that he should get skates too, but he finally settled for a hockey stick and a puck. Oh, Brian looked forward with eagerness to the promised skates. He thought of them often. Whenever the boys gathered after school with worn, sliver-thin sticks to play a sort of hockey between tin can goalposts and with a blob of frozen horse manure for a puck, and the more he thought of them, the less envious he was of Art with his women's skates. There would be nothing feminine about his. They would be sturdy tubes with thick felt tongues. Oh, the night before Christmas, he was almost sick with excitement and anticipation. As he lay in his bed with Bobby beside him, he could see the skates clearly with their frosted tubing and the clear runners that would cling to his thumb when he ran it along them to test their sharpness. He could see himself gliding over the river, alone on shining ice, with a twist and a lean, a shower of ice snow, and he came to a breathtaking stop. Bobby stirred in his sleep. Are you awake, Bobby? But Bobby didn't answer him. Perhaps there would be straps over the ankles. Not that he would need them, for his ankles were strong. His feet wouldn't slop. He flexed them beneath the covers. Yeah, stronger than anything. Maybe they were too strong. And when he pushed, he would push the ice clean full of cracks. He closed his eyes tightly. Oh, if only he could get to sleep, the time would pass more quickly. When one slept, it was nothing. Swift as a person on skates. Swift as the wind. He came, Brian! He came! Bobby was jumping on the bed, his hair bright in the winter sunshine that filled the room. Brian jumped from bed. Come on! Their stockings, lumpy with oranges, each with a colored cardboard clown protruding from its top, hung from the mantle of the fireplace. Bobby's sleigh that could be steered was before the tree. Bobby threw himself upon the parcels. Hey, wait a minute, cried Brian. They're not all yours. Just with your name. He began to sort out the presents upon which Maggie the night before had printed in the large block letters that Brian could easily read. Anxiously, Brian watched the growing pile of parcels beside him. He opened a deep box to find it full of colored cars and an engine in little compartments. He opened another. A mechanical affair, which when wound, caused two long men to dance, all the while turning round. Slippers were in one promising-looking parcel, and as he opened the last of his parcels, he was filled with the horrible conviction that something was wrong. And then he saw a parcel behind the Christmas tree. 
His name was on it. He opened it. They were not tube skates. They were not single runnered skates. They were bob skates. Double runnered affairs with curving toe cleats and a half bucket arrangement to catch the heel of the shoe. For a swift moment, Brian's heart was filled with mixed feeling. A disappointment bitter and blinding was there, but with it, a half-dazed feeling of inner release and relief that he had got skates. They were skates, he told himself as he turned them over in his hands. What's the matter, Brian? Bobby had looked up from his fire engine. Brian got up and went into the living room. He sat on the window seat next to the shamrock plant, the bob skates upon his knees. When Bobby came through a while later, clutching a hockey stick a foot longer than himself, Brian paid no attention to him. Throughout dinner, he spoke only when spoken to. When his father and uncle were seated in the living room with lighted cigars, and his mother and grandmother were in the kitchen washing the dinner dishes, he went unnoticed to the hallway, put on his coat and toque, and with the bob skates went out. He passed other children as he walked, pulling Christmas sleighs and Christmas toboggans, some with gleaming Christmas skates slung over their shoulders. Through the fiercely tinseled snow, sparkling unbearably in the sunlight, he walked, not toward the downtown bridge where children and adults swooped over cleared ice, but toward the powerhouse and the small footbridge. There he sat near a clump of willow, fitted the skates to his feet, buckled the straps over his insteps, and went knee-deep through the snow on the riverbank to the ice. Once on the ice, he stood for a moment on trembling legs. He pushed with one foot. It skidded sideways. The other went suddenly from under him, and he came down with a bump that snatched his breath. He got carefully up and stood uncertainly. He pushed a tentative skate ahead, and then another. He stood still, with knees half-bent. He gave a push with one skate, preparatory to swooping over the ice, and fell flat on his face. He got up. He began a slow, forward, sliding across the ice, painfully, Non-committal steps of a stroke victim just risen from bed. He was not skating. He was walking with an overwhelming feeling of frustration that reminded him of dreams in which he ran with all his might but stayed only in one spot. He fell again and felt his elbow go numb. He sat on the ice looking at his own feet ahead of him, and he began to cry. Brian's parents, his grandmother, and his uncle were seated in the living room when he got back to the house. He was carrying the bob skates as he came out of the hallway. Ah, oh, you been skating? said Sean. Brian didn't answer him. Uncle Sean asked you a question, son, said Maggie. Sean's big, freckled hand reached out to take one of the bobskates. 
That's a damn fool question, said Sean. Fella doesn't skate with bob skates. <laughs> Had somebody pulling you, did ya? Brian shook his head. What's wrong? Brian's father was looking at his tear-stained face. Brian rushed from the room. What do you mean? Maggie turned to Sean. What do you mean? What's wrong with his skates? What did you mean by... Oh, yeah, they call them skates, said Sean. You can't skate with them. Just teaches kids a healthy respect for ice, that's all. He's got no grip at all. They skid like hell. Never forget the first time I took Gerald on ice with a pair. <laughs> About the same age as Brian. He had a hell of a time. Ended up hanging onto my coattails whilst I pulled him around. <laughs> yes, but that means that Brian... That means that... Maggie got up and went swiftly from the room. She found Brian at the kitchen window. Oh, don't they work, son? Still looking out the window, Brian shook his head. Oh, aren't they what you wanted? Tubes. He got out with difficulty. Tubes. Like in Harris's. Oh. I'm sorry, Brian. Maggie watched his shoulders moving. She turned his face around to her. Oh, don't, please, don't, sweetie. I'll fix it. And she went to the phone. Mr. Harris, have you got a, a pair of, of tube skates left? A small size? I wonder, I wonder if we, will, if you could come down to the store with me and my son. Will you? You, you will? That night, Maggie O'Connell stood at her children's bedside. With her white nightgown almost to her heels, her hair in two black braids, she looked like a little girl in the dimness of the room. A glinting caught her eye, and she saw a length of leather lace hanging down the side of the bed. Brian slept with his hand clenched around the runner of one tube skate, his nose almost inside the boot. Maggie reached out one hand and laid it lightly upon Brian's cheek. The next excerpt from Canadian author W.O. Mitchell's novel, Who Has Seen the Wind, read by former As It Happens co-host Barbara Budd. On Friday, a federal jury ordered Rudy Giuliani to pay two Georgia poll workers $148 million U.S. in damages for falsely claiming they had engaged in election fraud, after which Mr. Giuliani apologized, saying he had seen the error of his ways and pledging to do everything he could to make things right. <laughs> Just kidding. Within hours of the judgment, he repeated the exact same false claims in interviews. So on Monday came a new lawsuit from the legal team for Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss with a call for Mr. Giuliani to stop repeating his debunked claims or face further penalties. Annie Houghton Larson is a member of that legal team, and we reached her in New York City. Rudy Giuliani 
was on TV just hours after you filed this this latest suit, repeating his claims that he has evidence to prove your clients engaged in election fraud. He calls the suit un-American. Mm-hmm. What do you think it will take to to stop him from continuing to make those kinds of statements? Because he he hasn't so far. It's an interesting question, and you know, if I. Um knew what motivated Mr. Giuliani uh, and and could predict his behavior, we'd be in a very different place. From our perspective, the team's perspective, and also the client's perspective, it's important to think about the deterrent effect, not just on Mr. Giuliani, um, but also on others who potentially um, could want to republish his statements, provide him with a platform, or who would want to defame other individuals in the future. So it's important for us to look beyond just Mr. Giuliani uh, and his ongoing conduct. Do you feel that the the justice system is is equipped to actually make him stop talking? Uh, It's it's another good question. I think that the justice system um, has already provided our clients Mm -hmm. with a great sense of justice and recognition just by having them have a platform um, to share the truth and have Mr. Giuliani be accountable. Um, Is the American justice system perfect? Certainly not. But, you know, the team is going to continue pursuing every uh, legal avenue available to us to hold him accountable and to prevent him and others from from continuing to spread these lies. How are your clients feeling? What have they told you about what it's like to, to see and hear him repeat these claims even after they won that big defamation case against him? The feeling of the client is mixed. It was very validating for both Ruby and Shay to have a jury of their peers return such a large verdict. It's also heartbreaking to know that Mr. Giuliani could also have sat in that courtroom and also heard the evidence and heard their testimony and that he would continue to choose to spread these lies. If you're successful with this new suit, the second suit, and Giuliani continues to defy the court's orders, what kinds of penalties could he be facing? Uh, so he could face uh, civil contempt, um, which could leave him facing jail time, um, and he also could face additional monetary penalties. Do you think there's enough teeth to that? In order to deter him? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess uh, that remains to be seen, um, but we certainly believe that it's that it's worth pursuing. Your firm is also pushing this week, pushing the courts to expedite the efforts to enforce that $148 million judgment. He is reportedly in deep financial trouble. Uh, I'm wondering if, if you're confident that your clients will actually see any money. We're confident that whatever finances and assets Mr. Julie has to satisfy a judgment, uh, we will recover on behalf of our clients. Uh, It is certainly a question mark what assets uh, Mr. Giuliani has. You know, we obviously cannot trust the representations he makes in public um, about his finances or or anything else if if this week, last week's trial has told us anything. 
Um, so we are certainly pursuing additional information to aid in recovering those assets, and, and we're pursuing recovering those assets full force. I'm wondering what your clients have, have told you and what you can share about how this whole process impacted their lives. Miss Miss Moss, Shay Moss, said in her testimony last week that Mr. Giuliani's conduct has impacted and, and forever changed every single aspect of her life. And, and her mother, Ruby Freeman, would certainly agree. Uh, I think it's impossible for those of us um, who have not experienced it to truly understand what it is like to go from being anonymous to infamous and to be hated with such intensity by an outspoken portion of the American population. Um, Miss Moss, who had her career in um, counting absentee ballots in Georgia, who dreamt of retiring in that position, was told that she would never touch a ballot again because of the stigma. She has been experiencing panic attacks, anxiety, depression. Um, she's fearful of being alone. She almost doesn't leave her house. And when she does, she is sure to have someone with her, or if they can't be physically with her, to have someone on FaceTime uh, uh, with her because the anxiety is so extreme. Miss Freeman, um, who had the President of the United States saying her name over and over and over again, um, identifying her as a, a known vote scammer, um, she also had her home address made public and had protesters and private citizens coming to her house, banging on her door, trying to enter the home to make a citizen's arrest. As a result, she obviously no longer feels safe there. She has had to move. She's left the community um, that she lived in for more than 20 years, left her neighbors, left her friends. The, the impact on, on them has been immense. We know Giuliani has, has promised to appeal the, the mm -hmm. initial case. What's your response to him? We would be happy to defend the judgment um, on appeal. Uh, if, if Mr. Giuliani saw our team's performance at trial and would like to go toe-to-toe -to -toe again, he's welcome to do so. Annie, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Annie Houghton-Larsen is part of the legal team representing Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. We reached her in New York City. Unjust, unfair, racist, and wrong. Those were the words Boston Mayor Michelle Wu used to describe the treatment of two black men who were wrongly accused of murder in 1989. Today she made a public apology to Alan Swanson and Willie Bennett, who were jailed as suspects in the murder of Carol Stewart, who was pregnant at the time she was shot and killed. Her husband claimed they had been attacked by a black carjacker, 
but later killed himself after his brother confessed to helping him hide the gun used to kill his wife. Leslie Harris was the attorney for one of the accused men in 1989. He went on to become a Boston judge. Here's what he said after the mayor's apology today. I represented Ellen Swanson 34 years ago. I never expected this day. I saw the trauma that he went through. I saw the fear that he had to live through. The death threats, not just to him, but to me and to the Roxbury defenders. Went down to Child Street Jail, the old Child Street Jail, where they held him separate from everyone else. Because if they put him in general population, accused baby killer, woman killer, he'd have been dead. They spat in his food. They beat on his cell door. He lived in terror. And I don't know how you undo that. I believe in restorative justice. And in order for restorative justice to occur, you have to acknowledge a wrong. And that's what happened today. We've had a number of mayors since Flynn. Nobody else had the courage, the strength to step up and say what our mayor said today. We've had a number of police commissioners. Not one of them apologized until today. This was an intelligent, capable young man, but he never got the chance in life. I'm saying that we owe them something. As a community, as a city, as a nation. We owe them an opportunity to move forward. We owe them an opportunity for the next generation not to have to suffer what they suffered. This is, this is bigger than anything I ever expected. I never expected an apology. Now I want the Herald, the Globe, four, five, and seven, all of them, to do the same. Send their apologies, say they got it wrong, and let us start trying to do restorative justice. Thank you. That was retired Boston Judge Leslie Harris earlier today. He spoke after Boston Mayor Michelle Wu made a public apology to Alan Swanson and Willie Bennett, who were wrongly accused of a 1989 murder. Every night in December leading up to Christmas, a house in the Calgary neighborhood of Varsity lights up a decorated window. It's a holiday tradition. But this year, the Advent ritual is a bit different. This year, the residents decided to try to make the windows a source of inspiration for a 10-year-old boy who's getting treatment for brain cancer. Each window contains a message, Easton Be Strong. Amanda Moppet Beach is Easton Beach's mother. All along in this journey, since June, kind of our line for Easton has been Easton be strong. Uh, he's a strong little guy. He's a hockey player, a 10-year-old hockey player in town. And 
He's tough as nails. It's been a real hard journey so far, but you know, he's the smiliest of all of us and he's so strong every day, but for him to just now uh, see each window and realize people are thinking of him and supporting him, it's just been a wonderful surprise that's been so uplifting in an otherwise pretty hard month. What people are coming up with, you know, the colors, his name is big and bold. One video we even have is these, in one window, it's a flashing message of Easton be strong and it just keeps going and going across. So, uh, and they're really well done. And then what we actually do is each night, then when we go find the house, we've been knocking on the doors and meeting our neighbors. So it's also been wonderful to, and, you know, I introduce them to Easton and just say how, you know, we appreciate their support and for them taking the time. And it's been a really wonderful way to meet the neighbors. And truly, you know, after some of these long, hard days, it's been a really nice thing to look forward to. Uh, even our daughter, Ellie, obviously she's at school some days or so she won't be with us at the hospital, but it's just been her new favorite thing to do. Like, when are we going to go drive and find the next house? So it's been an awesome, awesome experience so far. Well, I kept it a secret. You know, he was a bit tired. He was a little grumpy. You know, I don't want to go see the windows. Like, I'm tired. And then I was like, well, look closer. Like, and he's like, oh, look, there's some candles. <laughs> you know, oh, that's neat. And I'm like, look closer. And then all of a sudden, he's like, does that say Easton be strong? And then, you know, I'm crying. Like, yes, it does, buddy. Like, this is for you. And he was like, what do you mean? And then when I explained that every night, I've heard there's going to be, you know, your name you got to find. So we got to, you know, you know, keep our strength up. We got to make sure um, we're strong enough to go out and find the next one. And then day two, you know, he sees it again, Easton be strong. And, you know, it's, it, it is making him strong. Like it's giving us something to look forward to. He can't be at school right now. Unfortunately, there's just too much sickness around. Uh, so these long days can be, he's a little tired of mom being his teacher. Um, so this really gives us something to look forward to every day. That was Amanda Moppet-Beach speaking with CBC Calgary reporter Brendan Coulter. The world's oldest auction house branched out recently. Amid sales of rare thousand-year-old sculptures and 18th-century Rococo chests, it squeezed in some items that are a little bit younger, and one assumes significantly less rare. The sofas and chairs and other furnishings that were on the block on Monday evening at Stockholm's Aktionswerk weren't made by master artisans of the past, but by the very same people who picked them up, hauled them home, and laboriously assembled them through a combination of sweat, tears, cursing, and Allen keys. Lee Pomp is the head of Stockholm's Aktionswerk and the woman behind this week's vintage IKEA sale. We reached her in Stockholm. Lee, when you first started out at this auction house, there was a rule... Can you tell me what that was? Yeah, I started in this industry over 25 years ago. And as a, a beginner, you're, you're taught, you know, what items do we not accept in the world's oldest auction house, which is, you know, we are 350 years old with a, you know, honorable history and all that. And, and I, I was taught that we do not accept, uh, let's say, ivory from the 20th century. We do not accept, let's say, Second World War connected items. And we do not accept IKEA furniture. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what has changed? Well, it's been uh, 25 years and, and a lot has been 
written about IKEA. There's been research about IKEA. Uh, some, well, not so famous or not famous at all, or not even identified designers are now uh, considered to be a part of the Scandinavian design history. Mm. And uh, IKEA has also played a role for how uh, not only Swedish, but uh, Scandinavian and maybe also worldwide homes look like today. That I mean, at the time, 80 years ago, when IKEA was founded, um, it was a part of the welfare system, if you like. And, and the founder, Kamprad, he was always talking about um, furniture for the many. Yeah. I mean, accessible furniture. So it has also had an impact how these homes look like, I mean, design-wise. And uh, uh, now it's important to celebrate 80 years of design history and also put the spotlight on these specific designers that actually made a difference. IKEA has certainly had an impact on North American homes, as I'm sure you'll know. Uh, it's definitely the place you go for accessible and affordable furniture. I'm thinking, you know, dorm rooms, mm. but first apartments, first homes. But but beyond that uh, as well, I think most people probably have at least one thing from IKEA uh, in, mm. in their home. But how is IKEA furniture thought of or viewed in, in Sweden? It's a bit controversial because, yes, it allows the many to to have a, a nicer surrounding at home. But then it's, of course, a question of how much more furniture do we actually need on this yeah. planet? I mean, I represent the secondary market and, and we try to make people, you know, change uh, to sell and to buy on the same secondary market. So uh, to me, it is a bit... Uh, yeah, it, it's both ways. You know? Yeah, there, there's lots of criticism as well that it's sort of, um, uh, I guess, the furniture version of, of fast fashion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's always also been, uh, you know, questioned uh, regarding the copying because fast fashion mm -hmm. or uh, fast furniture, it is also a little bit about, you know, looking maybe sometimes a little bit too close uh, on other designers or other producers. So that also has been a, a topic yeah. during the, the 80 years, and we shall not try to hide that. Yeah. So that is that that discussion is is ongoing, certainly. But let's talk about the sale itself. What yeah. was on the auction block? Yeah, because for the viewing at our showroom in in central Stockholm, mm -hmm. we cherry picked um, 120 IKEA items that had proven to uh, stand the test of time. I mean, in the terms of both designed and material and production. So it was a range of modernist Scandinavian uh, teak sideboards, uh, funky lightning from the 80s, mm. uh, lamps with sculptural qualities, upholstered leather armchairs from the 70s, and also this limited series called the 18th century series um, that was produced uh, during a very limited time. Did you have to build any of the furniture in the sale? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, no. This is, as I said, it was. It is uh, secondary market. These yeah. are all already classics established, okay. and that no. was somebody else's uh, job. Yeah, back in the <laughs> back day. in the days. Yeah, no Billy bookcases being uh, assembled. No Billy bookcases. <laughs> no, and Billy was not allowed in this one. No, a little too ubiquitous. Not enough. Not sturdy enough. Maybe they can be very useful. Let's be honest. But yes, sturdiness oh, yeah. perhaps not the. Uh, the main thing yeah talking about billy i yeah. mean that is the uh, ikea bestseller from all times it was designed back in 
1979. Mm -hmm. And the designer was also the inventor of the flat packages. His name is Yilis Lundgren. And he was the most influential designer at IKEA and the fourth employee. He was hired already back in 1953. What a legacy. What a legacy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So what kinds of reaction were you getting from people as they toured and... and looked at what what was up for us we had had we have had very much media from all over uh, the world actually uh it seems to be bigger than we can understand in sweden um because we are so used to this and as i uh, as i see it we we have always a, a discussion going on um, around ikea but to the world in total it seems to be uh, a very hot news <laughs> that that this is actually happen happening in in a in a distinguished auction house like ours. Do you think then you know the message of this? Are you are you suggesting to people they should hang on to their IKEA items? I guess. Uh, well, it, it's we cannot say that hang on to to everything because we say no to most of the IKEA right. I mean we still say no to the most uh, most of the IKEA furniture um so it is a, a limited range of IKEA furniture that still that we would let in Lee I appreciate your time thank you Thank you and uh, happy holidays to you as well Lee Pomp is the head of Stockholm's Actionswerk we reached her in Stockholm At this time of year, chimpanzees and bonobos are not tempted to belt out old Lang Syne like we are. <laughs> they don't even understand what old Lang Syne means. Then again, neither do I. But it seems the great apes do recall old acquaintances. That is the conclusion of a new study of apes at three zoos, including a bonobo who recognized a face that she had not seen in 26 years. Laura Lewis is a primate researcher at the University of California, Berkeley. We reached her today in Leipzig, Germany. Laura, it was an experience that you had with a chimp named Kendall that sort of sparked this or planted the seed for this. What happened with Kendall? Yeah, that's right. Um, So I started working with Kendall um, when I was 19 years old, and I was studying him as an undergraduate at Duke University. As a junior then, um, I had to take a summer away from working with Kendall and the other chimpanzees at the North Carolina Zoo. Mm -hmm. And I was gone for almost six months. And when I returned, I was nervous that the chimps might not remember me when I returned. Um, But sure enough, Kendall came right up to me. You know, I was kind of outside of his enclosure, but he came right up to the mesh um, and acted like he recognized and remembered me, even though I had been been gone for six months. What what was he doing to make you think that he remembered you? Yeah, he was. He loved to look at my fingernails and my rings, and he kind of gestured to be able to look at my fingernails and rings again. He got, um, you know, pretty close to me. We weren't touching, but pretty close to me, and was just acting very calm and kind of trusting in front of me, which is when a new person, uh, you know, enters uh, near their enclosure, um, they can get very excited Mm -hmm. and show lots of behaviors that are quite different. So to me, it seemed clear that he remembered and recognized me. He was calm and acting just like, you know, I had never left. That must have been a, a special moment. 
It was definitely really special. It's not just me who's had an experience yeah. like this. Numbers of us who have worked with apes, um, when we return, it seems like the apes remember us. But we just never had the data to show that they actually do remember others after years of not seeing them. So you decide to, to move this beyond the hunch phase and try to collect that That's data. Right. So what did you do for the study? Yeah, absolutely. We set out to do what is called non-invasive eye tracking. So eye tracking uses um, an infrared camera in order to measure where the chimps and bonobos in the study were looking on a screen, on a computer screen. So we could show them two pictures on the computer screen side by side. One was a picture of a previous group mate that they had lived with um, that had either died or left the group some years ago. And the other was a picture of a complete stranger. So the question was very simple. Um, we were asking, would the apes recognize their previous groupmates and would they look longer at the images of their previous groupmates? And that's exactly what they found. Both chimpanzees and bonobos looked significantly longer at the images of their previous groupmates as compared to the images of strangers. And in our main data set, we have um, images of previous groupmates that have died or left the group going back a decade. And in our larger data set, we actually have trials from one bonobo, Louise, who hadn't seen her sister, Loretta, yeah. or nephew, Aaron, for over 26 years. What it seems like is that she was also looking a lot longer at the image of her sister and nephew that she hadn't seen for over 26 years. So that, um, that length so, of time, that lingering, as well as the eye movements right. that you were tracking, that leads you to believe that's right. that Louise sensed she was among family in this case. Yeah, yeah. It seems like she really was recognizing, yeah, the images of her family members that she hadn't seen for 26 years. What do you think the um, longest and, yeah, might be in terms of a chimp or a bonobo remembering someone? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, thinking about our own human memory, we as humans can remember others for at least 30 years, mm -hmm. if not more like 48 years or more. So we have really long-term memory, right, That that's last over half of our lifetime. Chimpanzees and bonobos are also very long-lived individuals who have complex social relationships. So they can live to 40, 50, or even sometimes 60 years in the wild. And I would guess that their long-term memory really does rival ours and that it may last um, you know, well beyond half of their lifetime. We didn't find any evidence of memory degradation, that their mm -hmm. memory was degrading in any way um, in this study. So I think we're not actually capturing the full extent of their long-term memory. I think it certainly goes back more than a decade and, and likely more than two decades, as we're seeing. Can you characterize the kinds of relationships they have with, with folks or other, you know, apes that they were seeing and remembering? I mean, is it friendship in the way that we would know it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We can characterize uh, their social relationships. And that's actually what we did in this study. So besides just asking, do they remember these previous groupmates? We also wanted to see if their social relationships shaped their long-term memory um, at all, as it, it does in humans. So what we did is we asked the zookeepers who had worked with these previous groupmates and the participants in our study, and we asked them to characterize their social relationships in three ways the levels of positive interactions, levels of negative interactions, and the relative dominance, you know, whether they were more dominant or submissive to the participants in our study. 
And we found that chimps and bonobos looked significantly longer at the images of their previous groupmates with whom they had more positive social relationships, or what you might call their friends. Now, we characterize these positive social relationships as relationships where individuals spent a lot of time in proximity together and spent a lot of time grooming each other. Have you seen Kendall again since that second time in 2015? <laughs> That's a great question. I haven't actually, I haven't had an opportunity to visit mm -hmm. Kendall and the other chimps at the North Carolina Zoo. I do hope to do so, hopefully next year. We'll see if we can make that happen. Okay, you'll let us know Kendall's reaction. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, what's your sense? Do you think Kendall will, will take your hand again? Look at those rings? What if you're not wearing the same rings? It's a rings? good question. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually am wearing the same ring okay. that, I, that I've worn um, since that time. I think you'll probably recognize me. Let's see, it's been... Um, been about seven years. It might be eight years. So I expect he will probably remember me when I return. Laura, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Laura Lewis is a researcher at the University of California, Berkeley. She's in Leipzig, and you can find that story on our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. You've been listening to As It Happens on the CBC Listen app. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, After the World at 6. And you can always read more about the stories and conversations we have on As It Happens on our website at cbc.ca slash AIH. I'm Neil Kirksal. Thanks for listening. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.